Looking forward to this morning. I have been all day. I'm, it's, uh, I feel something in the air. Um, I feel the Holy Spirit has orchestrated this day, and I am so glad to be able to experience it with you. Um, and you'll learn more about that as we go along. But um, I just wanted to, just for a minute, let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer, and then we'll continue. God, as we are gathered here, we recognize that um, you are here in this place. And I just pray that we are able to block out all the distractions and able to hear your voice louder than any other voice in our heads. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Amen. Well, if you are here for the first time or if you have been with us uh, for the last couple weeks, you know that we are in a series entitled Guardrails. And I started this series off asking a question, if there has ever been anyone in your life that you regretted meeting? And you all kind of laughed, and then I heard people say, oh, more than one, there's been several people in my life. And, um, but all of us have people in our lives that we maybe regret have, have meeting. And so today we're going to talk about that it's the friends we've met that are connected to our greatest regret. And I don't know what your greatest regret is or regrets are, but chances are they're connected to somebody or a group of people. Or if you were alone, there was still that influence of that relationship. And it's a strange thing because the, the regrets we have, the people they involve are not necessarily our enemies. Oftentimes it's because it's been with a friend or someone that we've trusted. But it's something to think about. So in this series, Guardrails, um, some of you, you're going to wish that your kids were here listening to this, or your cousin, or you're really glad your spouse is here listening. But I want to ask you, and I pray that you will listen today through the filter of whatever it is that you need to hear, and maybe what God wants you to hear from this. So it's easy for us to say, oh, this message is for so-and-so, when really it's for us. And so just as a brief review, a guardrail is a system designed to keep vehicles from from, um, straying into dangerous areas. Uh, They're designed to protect us and direct us. They're put inside of the safety zone, not in the danger zone, because we know that we need that margin of error when we're driving, some more than others. Um, that they're designed to minimize damage to our vehicle, that if we were um, to hit the guardrail, it would be less damage than if we were to not have a guardrail there. We could end up in the hospital or worse. And the reason we named this series Guardrails is, not because, is because the highway is not the only place that we need guardrails in our lives. We need it in our lives. Sometimes the greatest regrets we've had, financial, moral, relationship, professional, regrets could have been prevented had we established some guardrails. Now, the pushback on all of this and through our series together is that we live in a world that doesn't value this idea. The culture does not encourage guardrails. Our culture is just fine with painted lines, right? They they, they don't want, uh, the people are uncomfortable when we create rules, guardrails for ourselves because it feels like you're trying to impose your ideas on them. But the culture is the first one to mock and shame you when your life ends up in a ditch, right? So it's interesting that that is what we live in. And it's an incredibly important topic as we talk about this because there's, as we talked about last week, there's not a right and a wrong answer here because this falls in the category of wisdom. And wisdom, it kind of dances in the gray area because you can argue your way out of wisdom, which we'll see here in a little bit. 
But today, specifically, I want to talk about your friends and your associates, the people that you do life with, your, you know, your tribe, those who you work with, you're with all the time. And the reason we want to do this is because we said the people we consider our friends are oftentimes connected to the things we regret in our lives. Now, I'm going to just acknowledge this up front that some pushback I might get from you is that this may come across as being judgmental. Like, gosh, these are my friends. You're being so judgmental for telling me not to be with them. And there's a big difference about being judgmental and exercising good judgment. And we're going to do that. We're going to discuss that first. Seeing being judgmental is me forming, half forming, an opinion about you, about what you should do, about what you should stop doing. Being judgmental is setting myself up as what? Starts with a J. A judge, right, right. If I'm judgmental, I set myself up as a judge and I'm judging your behavior. What I draw is a critical or maybe even harsh conclusion about you expecting you to be or act different. But good judgment is different. Good judgment is about me. Good judgment is about drawing conclusions in my life. Good judgment is in light of my past experiences, what I've been through, in light of my current circumstances, where I am today, in light of my future hopes and dreams, who I want to become, what is the best decision to make right now? What is best good, what is a good judgment for me to do? Judgmental assumes something about the other person. So today, this message is about you. How you should respond in light of your future hopes and dreams. It's about making wise decisions in light of the fact that your greatest regret will involve people that you've already met. And most of us can think of one person Maybe some of you half a dozen of people you wish you never met. Is it being judgmental? Though it's hindsight. It's hindsight. It says, if I wish I had used better judgment. Now, if that doesn't help, let me tackle this from a different angle. When you were a child, and um, so many, all of us were children at one point, um, when you were growing up, you were middle school or high school, high schoolers, middle schoolers, you can relate because you're probably here now. Um, if you had the people who looked after you, your mom and dad, or maybe you had an aunt and uncle or grandparent who watched after you, if they did their job right, they were paranoid about your friends, right? They would intervene. They would, they would say, no, you can't hang out with this group. No, they can't come over to our house. No, you cannot have a sleepover there. And then if you pushed it too far, maybe they pulled you out of a school, sent you to a different school. If that didn't work, maybe you moved states, like to Utah, I don't know, some, somewhere else. I don't know, I picked Utah. But, um, and they, they would put up all of these boundaries and uh, say, I'll read your journal. I'll find out more about what's going on to protect you. Now, now that you're a parent, many of you in this room are parents, I think you're even more paranoid, right? Because you remember you, right? You're like, I know what you're thinking because I did the same exact thing, right? Um, But... uh, Today, we have really a huge advantage because now we can stalk our kids' friends, right? I mean, we can, like, before, the, the, before you know, the person comes over to our house, I know everything about, I mean, as much as they put on social media, I know their parents, I know if they're married or divorced, if they have siblings, if they like cats, or if they like dogs. Um, I just kind of know everything. And is that being judgmental? No, maybe nosy, but um, not judgmental. It's, it's because you care, right? It's because you want the best for your children, because you know that our friends determine the future of our lives. 
The thing about great friendships and great relationships with people is that when you have stuff in common, it's easy, it's fun, it's relaxing. And what happens when you're around people who you consider great friends, and it's supposed to happen, this is, this is the idea, is that you let your guard down, right? You're like, ah, oh, I love these people. They're my people. We talk the same language. This is great. But the thing that makes them so great is also what makes them so hazardous. And you may not know this about yourself, but as human beings, you are an acceptance magnet. You're designed that way. You are drawn to people, environments, groups that make you feel comfortable and accepted, good or bad. We're drawn toward places where we feel safe. We're accepted. And that means when it comes to relationships, we need to have some guardrails put up. Now, there's an article written, I thought this was fascinating, by a neuroscientist. His name is Morin Serf. He's a professor at Northwestern University. And for over 10 years, he's been studying the relationship between decision-making and relationships. And here's what he discovered. And um, what we've observed about people, um, influencing other people isn't just behavioral. Um, it's actually neurological. Now, follow me here for a second. Um, something happens in your brain when you're with people. In this study, they discovered that the brain waves of people, when they spend time together, something happens. The brain waves begin to align. So like before the behavior happens, before the attitude change, something happens on the inside of our brains and our brain waves begin to line up. Now that's scary. I mean, so here's what he says. He said, the more we study engagement, we see time and time again that just being next to certain people actually aligns your brain with them. So look to your left. (laughs) Look to your right. Do it. That while we're here together, your brain waves are being aligned. In fact, it just happened. So I, I, words came out of my mouth. They vibrated the air into the room. Your brain took the vibrations and turned them into words. Then you laughed with people next to you, because I'm so funny. Um, maybe with people you've never met before, and you kind of lined up. That's kind of scary. And he says, it isn't just behavioral, it's, it's neurological. And he goes on to say, if people want to maximize happiness, that's me, and minimize stress, that's you, then look at the conclusion he draws. He says, they should build a life that requires fewer decisions by surrounding themselves with people who embody the traits they prefer. He says, without any effort, without any decision on your part, your brain will begin to line up automatically with the people And you will start to become the kind of people that you are with. We'll naturally pick up desirable attitudes and behaviors. But the flip side is this. Over time, if you don't hang out with people you want to be like, you will begin to line up and be like the people you don't want to be like. Does that make sense? It made sense in my head. Um, You will pick up undesirable attitudes and behaviors. Just being in proximity. Just being around people will influence your decision. Now, interesting enough, over 3,000 years ago, King Solomon, he's one of the kings in in Israel. He was considered one of the wisest men to ever live, some say to ever, ever live. Um, He makes a statement that uh, says what we've just discovered through science. He says, Proverbs 13, 20, he says, walk with the wise and become wise. Just by being in proximity, you don't have to do anything, just walk with them and you will become wise. It'll happen automatically. 
And wisdom we talked about last week. It's somebody who understands that all of life is connected. Our past, our current, our our future. And wisdom says if you spend time with wise people, it's contagious. Wisdom is contagious. It rubs off. And then the second part for him, he says, for a companion of fools suffers harm. In the Jewish scriptures, a fool was a person who didn't live carefully. Um, remember last week we talked about the Apostle Paul. He said, walk carefully or live carefully or be careful where you step. Right? He talked about not being foolish. He said, a fool is someone who's just not careful with their life. And the interesting thing about what Solomon says is what he didn't say. Because he said, walk with the wise and become wise. And what you expect him to say is, but walk with fools and become foolish. But he doesn't say that. He says, walk with fools and what? You get hurt. It's more than just a state of mind. It's actually the cause and effect relationship of walking with foolish people. So he says, worse than becoming foolish, you will get hurt. And what he's saying here basically is friends who are not careful with their lives will not be careful with your life. Friends who aren't careful with their health are not going to be careful with your health. Friends who aren't careful with their reputation will not be careful with your reputation. Friends who don't care about their marriage will not care about your marriage, finances. It goes on and on and on. Friends who don't take care of themselves are not going to take care of yourself. And so friendship requires guardrails. So one of the um, points of a guardrail is to light up your conscience before you veer into the danger zone. It's the thing that you bump into it before you make the bad decision, before you go in the wrong direction. And it's in the safety zone, so these are good things to have. So I wanted to give us um, a couple ideas, a couple guidelines um, to help us in this area. And also I just wanted to, to just say these are for you and not for the person you wish was sitting here. Okay, so this filter this through a lens for you. So, relational guardrails. Here's the first one. When it dawns on you that your core group isn't moving in the direction you want your life to be moving, that should light up your conscience. When it dawns on you, we know that, you know, we love the same music or we, have, we love the same food or the same artists. We have so much in common. But when I look at the direction this group is heading and I know I don't want to go in that direction, my conscience should light up. Where people are heading is a good indicator of where they're leading us. And none of us think that our group of friends are leading us anywhere, but that's hindsight. And ultimately, you also are a part of leading other people. So when it dawns on you that your core group isn't going in the direction you want to go, that should light up your conscience. Second one, when you catch yourself pretending to be something you're not, in other words, when you catch yourself nodding this and thinking, I don't believe this, but everyone around me is doing this, so I'm doing this too, that should light up your conscience. Or I don't know why I'm shaking my head no, but everyone else is, so I think that I should be doing that as well. When you feel the pressure to pretend to be somebody that you are not, when you feel the pressure to be other than who you truly are, that's a red flag. That should light up your conscience. That should make you rethink the nature of this relationship because if you are not authentic in who you are, it's a lie. You're lying to your friends. You're lying to yourself. And lying long enough, you will eventually become somebody that you're not. 
So that should also light up your conscience. When you feel the pressure to compromise, when you've gone, this, this, now this is not once you've compromised, but when you feel the pressure to compromise. Let me put it this way. Um, something before that wasn't a real temptation, but suddenly has become an option. You know, you've always just said, no, no, thank you, or no, I'm not going to go. I'll go on home now. You, you go ahead. And you find yourself driving home thinking, you know, maybe I could go. Maybe it won't hurt. What's never been a temptation before, it's never been an issue, never been a problem before, suddenly becomes an option that should bother you. Not once you've crossed the line, but before you've gotten there. And the next one is number four, thinking, um, when you catch yourself thinking, I'll go, but I won't participate. Ever done that? I'll go, but I won't participate. And let me ask you a question, and this might clear it up really easy for you. Um, Would you buy this statement from your 14-year-old daughter? No, Mom, it's okay. It's 12 boys, but me and my girlfriend, we're going to go, and um, they're going to do, I know there's going to be alcohol there because they have the cool mom, but it'll be okay. We'll go, but we won't participate, right? And you think, oh, yes, honey, sure, that'll be fine, right? No, you give two options. You say either stay home or I'll go with you, and there'll be three girls, and I'll wear my robe and my curlers, and it'll be awesome, Right? You wouldn't buy that from your kid or your daughter or your grand or your aunt or your cousin, whoever. Um, why do we buy it from ourselves? I'll go, but I won't participate. I'm just saying, when this conversation starts to happen in your head, it should light up something in us. And the last one is this. When you hope the people you care about don't know your whereabouts. When you hope that they don't know where you are. And even, you, you know, once you get there and you're about, go, about to get there and you haven't done anything wrong before, you know, you haven't done anything, you haven't broken the law, you haven't told any lies, um, you haven't done anything, but the fact in your heart that you're worried about having to lie about where you are, that's like the nucleus of a lie. But if you think that you would need to lie, then that should light up your conscience as well. And I know maybe this sounds a little over the top, or maybe you're thinking it's narrow-minded of me to throw this out there, but maybe you're thinking it's good for the kids to hear, but you don't need it. Please, I hope you listen to me, that we all need relational guardrails in our lives. This past uh, couple, two weeks ago, you know that John works at the National, uh, the Apprentice Institute, and they had their national conference. And I was there on, um, on Thursday. You go to the beginning. You have a full day, an intensive class. And um, so I went into this one class, and it was perfect. I walked in, and the room was in a U shape, and there were just like 10 people. And it was this perfect environment that I was going in. The name of the class was called uh, Doing Ministry as Human Beings. And it was all about just kind of being willing to be vulnerable with people and act acknowledge our weaknesses and that how, how um, God is made perfect in our weakness and that is, that is okay and that we all have weaknesses. And uh, while we were there, it was just one of those moments I really felt God lead me into this room. Uh, it was kind of an out-of-body week for me. Um, well, that's another sermon for another day. But um, while I was there, I met a friend um, and his name is Nate. And Nate is going to come and share with us this morning. But um, 
Nate shared a little bit about, about his story, and the manner in which he did so uh, drew me in to want to hear more. And I think the one, the one word that I would use to describe Nate was this uh, genuine sense of humility in acknowledging his weaknesses and acknowledging where he's been and where he's going. And while we were there that whole day, we introduced each other. We'd seen each other before. He lives in Benton, and um, we were praying toward the end of the day. And during our prayer, I just felt like this like, tap on my shoulder. I feel like the Holy Spirit said, he needs to come and share his story with Hope Covenant Church. And uh, we got done praying, and I was like, hey, this might be, you want to come share your story at Hope? in two weeks, because we're talking about friends, and I feel like you have a lot to, you could have a lot to add, and, and uh, so this is his first time sharing publicly his story, and I didn't know, a lot of times I think of like, oh, this would be great for us, but I can see God working in him too, and so it is with an, it's an honor and a privilege to introduce Nate to you this morning, and Nate is going to come up and share. Hello. Good morning. Thank you, Amber. Uh, hello, everybody. Kind of can see you. Can you hear me? Uh, okay. I'm not good with a mic, so see how this goes. Um, I'd like to open this up in prayer real quick, if you wouldn't mind. So I have a little spiritual malady and want to take credit for what God does, so I'm going to prepare not to do that. Uh, Father, um, just come into your presence. I just ask for you to uh, guide my words. I ask for you to share your story of my life. Um, I have nothing to offer these people except for what you have done in my life. and uh, I just ask for your words to, to come through and, and, and not mine. Um, I give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my name's uh, Nathan Griffin. Uh, Nate for short, or Nathan Lloyd if I'm in trouble, which is a lot. Uh, I really, really am starting to enjoy God's sense of humor. Um, don't always understand it, but uh, those of you who don't know me, but a few of you do, the fact that I'm speaking in public, but also speaking in a church is, is quite comical. Um, church is just a place I historically have been very uncomfortable with. Uh, you know, I remember the first time I went to a Sunday school, I was six, and my brother, um, he's like, you're going to love Sunday school, and I'm like, I don't know about that, and, uh, you know, I had like a litany of questions prepared, like, what's up with the virgin birth? I just don't think that's possible, like, and uh, so you can see where my Sunday school went pretty quickly, uh, uh, and that kind of set me on a path of just uh, not being able to understand God, you know? Uh, just not being able to comprehend um, the immensity of it all and kind of sent me on a path of just going, yeah, I think I'm just going to check out on that for, for a while, for a long time. Um, so anyway, um, you know, like I said, this isn't my story. This is, this is God's story. Um, it's just in my life. You know, what I, what I hope to share with you is some experience, some strength, and some hope. Um, you know, what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like now. Um, 
through this, you're going to hear who, you know, who I am, uh, who I was. Uh, offer you another question. You know, who am I? You guys don't know me, but uh, who am I listening to? It's probably a better way to hear my story. Um, you know, I might need a little help with this one. This has probably never been done in church, but how many of you guys know Eminem, you know, rapper? Yeah, you know the song, The Way I Am? Yeah, some of them. I won't. I can't rap, so maybe you guys can sing it with me, but uh, I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, then why would you say I am? In the paper, the news, every day I am. Radio won't even play my jam, because I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, then why would I say I am? In the paper, the news, every day I am. I don't know. It's just the way I am. So, what I used to be like. Okay. Um, I was a lot of things. I was a baseball player, I was a skeptic, I was a doubter, I was not a Christian, did not like being in church, genuinely disliked Christians, did not want to be around them, felt them to be self-righteous and condemning, and just couldn't really stomach them, and that included my family. Um, you know, I could, I could bite my tongue and keep quiet, but I just couldn't, I couldn't be in church, in a building, that's why I'm really... I've got to learn more about God's sense of humor because he's, he's really working on me. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I was an athlete. That's who I was. That was my identity. I mean, I just, uh, I worked hard to be an athlete and, you know, came with that hard working attitude. I was a partier. I was a drinker. I was a regular guy. I was a guy's guy. I was, you know, the world says I was a good guy, you know. Um, I was a player. I chased women. You know, I was the guy you wanted to have beers with and have more beers with and have more beers with and have more beers with, you know. But my competitive nature would show up, and I'd be the last one drinking, you know. I was always the last one still drinking. Um, so that was early on. I didn't know that then. You know, I just thought it's just what everybody did, you know. Um, that's kind of what I used to be like, and, um, you know, it's interesting uh, what happened in relation to my increased understanding of God? You know, how I understand God today is way different than what it was. Um, I have my wife to thank for that. I have my family. I have my journey. I have every moment of every day of my life to thank for it. Um, because I am all just, I'm, I'm all those moments leading up to this one. I didn't used to know that, but I know that now. So essentially what happened is Jesus happened. He just does. He happened, you know, whether I wanted him to or not. I mean, um, my wife and I were on a a no-kid plan, and uh, my dad cracked his head open doing something silly, and I had to go to Tulsa, and, and uh, he lays a guilt trip on me. He's like, hey, I think you need to have a kid. And I was like, Dad, I think you're crazy. You cracked your head a little too hard. Um but it started a conversation. I asked my wife, I said, what do you think about this? And she said, yeah, you know, I need about four or five months to pray about that because I don't know. And um, What I loved about my wife, and I still love about my wife, is that she was the first, you know, she was the first Christian I saw Christ in, if that makes sense. Um, because she was just patient with me. She didn't force her faith on me. She let she just let God continue to work on my heart through all the years that we were together. And uh, 
watching her pray about such a big decision and just dive into that um, encouraged me. And when she came to me and she said, hey, you know, I'm pregnant. I want to raise our family in a church. I said, okay. I said, I'll buy that. Let's, let's try some churches. So we found a church called Hope in Andover. And we went uh, on Easter Sunday a couple of years ago. And I remember hearing the gospel for the first time. I'd heard it many times. You know, I'd read the whole Bible once when I got released from playing minor league baseball. I was like, well, I'll just see what those Christians were talking about. And I read the book, and I was like, yeah, it's okay. Uh, it was like reading somebody else's mail, somebody told me, you know. But this time around, I heard the gospel because I, I got it. You know, that family narrative made sense to me, you know. Um, God giving up his one and only son. Like, I was like, wow, could I do that? You know, um, you know, one thing about me is I used to be able to think I could do anything. There was nothing I couldn't do. I didn't really need God. You know, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't really ever asked him for anything. If anything was there, I'd just kind of try to tackle it and do it myself. But in this particular situation, I knew I needed him. I knew I couldn't be a father without his help. Um, so I heard the gospel for the first time, and it actually clicked and made sense. And so... Something changed in me. Something started to transform after that moment on Easter. Started wanting to go to church. Started feeling comfortable in church. Started going. Got plugged in. Started asking questions. Asked a lot of questions. Probably annoyed a lot of people. Um, But I just started asking God questions was the more important thing. Um, And I got answers sometimes, you know. Sometimes reading reading his word this time around, it, it actually made sense. It was speaking to me personally, and I, I needed it. I needed to hear it. Um, and it started a transformative process. And, you know, what it started in me was it changed who I was listening to. I wasn't listening to me. I wasn't listening to you. I wasn't listening to what the world was saying. I wasn't listening to Eminem, you know. I, I just, I was listening to him, and I liked what he was saying. But then it got a little painful. So he was like, hey, you know, I love you just the way you are. Not as you should be, but, but I got some work to do on you, you know? And he's like, you drink too much, man. You drink way too much. And it gets in the way of what I'm trying to do in your life. Um, there are things I want to do, and I have to do them in spite of you instead of with you. Um, and that was convicting. Um, and it led me on a, a path of, um, yeah, you know, I don't know about guardrails. I never had them. Uh, and I don't know about friends either. I was a good friend and a bad friend. I uh, I thought guardrails didn't apply to me, um, and I wanted to knock down my friends' guardrails too. But I, you know, I have I have new friends now, and I still have old friends. But um, there are some people I had to set boundaries with. But my new friends, you know, spoke truth into my life, and you know, one in particular talked to me about humility, and uh, I didn't have any. I didn't know what the definition was. Uh, I, I literally I had to I had to Look it up. Um, because if you never needed God and you only relied on yourself, then you had to get pretty good at it. And that's kind of what I did. And, uh, you know, fatherhood changed that. And Jesus started to transform me. And, and in that, I just, I needed a new way of living. I needed a better design for living. I truly did. So, you know, some people, you know, some people find AA, but AA found me. Um, 
and the people in those rooms, um, you know, taught me a better way to live um, and continue to. So, you know, my alcoholism um, is makes me think crazy things. Like, I'm, a, you know, I'll give you an example. When I, the first time I read the Bible, I thought Paul was the first Mossad agent. I thought he was like the world's first spy for, for Israel. You know, I mean, that's just crazy thinking, right? And who does that? I do that. You know, so that whole brainwave thing, I'm, I'm really sorry for you all right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I do. I, I, I have a new way of living now. I do. I, I live a life along spiritual lines. It is, it is progress, not perfection. I don't claim to know everything. I, sh- I don't claim to know everything about God. I know one thing about God now. Um, he loves me. Um, I know that in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, when I read the word, I see that. His life proves that to me. His revelations in my life prove that to me. The people in these rooms, I, I see Christ in everyone now. I see him in your face. You know, when I'm traveling, I see him. Um, that's a new thing. That's new for me. That wasn't how I lived my life. I'm I'm 37, and for 35 years, all I saw was people in my way or something I needed from someone. And uh, you know, I used to hate Paul when I read the Bible. I was like, man, that's the most arrogant guy ever. I just can't get on board with that guy. And now I love him. Every time I read his letters, I just I think he's awesome. And I, for some reason, feel kind of a kindred spirit with him. And, you know, not sure if he was an alcoholic or not. But, <laughs> um, you know, the hope I want to offer is that um, transformation's important, and it doesn't have to be painful. It, in a lot of ways, has been painful for me in different ways, just because I make it painful. Um, I don't want to listen to God. I want to keep listening to myself or the world or you or, or anybody tell me who I am. But today, I just listen to who he, he says I am. And he said, hey, your drinking's getting in the way. So go figure out a way not to do that and I did and I do I get down on my knees every morning and I thank him for my sobriety and I thank him for my life because I didn't know that I was dead before I met him and now I'm alive for the first time and um, I get to speak in a church and actually enjoy it and get to talk and meet people and you know um, there is something so encouraging about his love um, you know, it's not exactly guardrails, but it's like training wheels. I feel like I'm just a little kid on a bicycle, and he's, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just right along with me going, you can do it, you can do it. It's just one more day at a time, you can do it. Um, so I hope some of this has helped. I, it's, just, it's just my story. It's actually God's story. Because every moment of my life, whether I was being obedient or disobedient or listening to the world or listening to him, he was using it for the ultimate moment when I just said, not my will, but thy will be done. And I say that every morning. And I, that's it's just how I live my life now. Um, and it's just a better way to live. It is a better design for living. And it's his design. It's what he had intended from the very beginning. To just be loved, be long, you know, and um, we do. Some know it, and just, some just think they know it, and there's a difference.
I used to think I knew everything. But the longer I walk with him, I realize I actually, I know very little. I don't know that much at all. But I know he loves me. And I'm not sure there's anything else. And in that, I'm free to love everybody. I'm free to be humble with people and not, you know, judgmental. I just, uh, I don't have to, you know. Um, I'm sweetly broken and fully surrendered, like the song said, and I just thought that was amazing. Um, you know, the truth is God is love, and he loves everyone. I'm not, I don't think there's a single person he doesn't care for and doesn't want to know. And if my story helps share some of that for someone in this room, then I give all the glory to him because I have nothing to offer that he didn't give me. It's all about him. Um, you know, it's funny that you guys played I Am a Child of God because that uh, that was really how I wanted to end, you know. It's the only thing I know today, that I am a child of God, and I'm no longer a slave to fear. Um, anxious and nervous, maybe? He's working on me. Progress, not perfection. So I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad you all are here, and I, uh, I just want to give all the glory to God. So uh, thank you all. Thank you so much. Um, question. Um, what do you uh, do? Oh, I'm a medical device sales rep. I sell titanium screws and rods and plates for head, neck, and back surgery. Nothing you want. Um, some of you may have. If you do, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I love so, love so much about Nate and his story is that um, you get a chance to talk to him after. He absolutely um, believes that he is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere he goes. So, you know, two years of, of loving and living and walking with Jesus, and he is a, and he's a pastor, he's a minister everywhere, so in, in every part of your life. Um, and I'm to- very encouraged by that. But question, um, as it pertains to guardrails, you, um, you said you got a text from a buddy mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was neat because you hear this and you say, great, live a transformed life and, and, um, walk with the Lord and know this. And then we say, okay, but how do I do that? How does that play out in my life? And I thought this was interesting that you had this experience. So I meet with a couple guys, three guys on Saturday mornings and we just talk about life. We started out to read this really complicated book and we've made it like 15 pages. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're like, we're like three months in. So yeah, the brain, brain, brain waves really sketchy, but, uh, we have a text thread, and we share all kinds of things, mostly encouragement, you know, books we're reading, Bible verses. And uh, in the thread one day, and it was just talking about, uh, you know, how we, how we hold each other accountable, how we keep on track in relation to our walk with Christ, and when we're struggling or when you know, we don't have all the answers. And somebody said, how do you do that? And I was like, well, you guys do that for me. You know, you're my guardrails. If I'm going off track, that's why I need to meet with you. You know, Jesus had his three. You know, it was the 12, but he had his three. He was tight with them, you know. So I have my three, um, and they're encouraging. Um, I have the people I meet with in AA, and they, they encourage me. They're honest. You know, I live a life based on honesty with myself, honesty with God. And uh, I don't know if I'm humble or not, but it leads to a little bit more. Um, you know, a guy can't be too humble in two years, so. I'm still working on it. (laughs) 
but having other people in our lives to hold us accountable, to lean on, to ask questions to, before we go off into that ditch is great. And so to hear how um, your three have played a part in that. Um, so it's being known and knowing God, but it's also belonging to people. And that's why we, we talk about that. You can be a part of that at this church. We have um, hope groups. Uh, you can check that box. You can talk to anyone. You don't even need us to organize it. Find people to um, align brainwaves with who will help you kind of live in, a, in a, a healthier way of transformation. And ultimately, this whole thing is, is um, how do we live lives with, um, with other people in the kingdom of God that makes the kingdom of God accessible to everyone? we come in contact with. And ultimately, that's what we're called to do as disciples of Jesus and what we're trying to do here. And um, so it is a ple- pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for sharing with us. If there's any questions, I know you're, welcome, you're uh, open to staying after and, and talking, talking more. But we're going to go into a time of communion this morning. And um, if you're going to serve communion, if you would come forward. Um, as we come to the, the table of remembrance, we remember what Jesus did um, the night before he was handed over to sin and death, before, his, uh, before he did that, he met with his people. He was with his people, and um, they had a dinner together. And while he was there, and he was telling them, he said, I'm not always going to be with you, right? But you're going to have each other. And he said, when you gather around this table, I want you to do so in remembrance of me. And before eating the bread, he, he raised it and he gave thanks to God And he broke the bread and he said, take this and eat each of you. This is my body which is broken for you. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and giving thanks to God, he raised it and said, each time you drink of this, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Each time you gather together, do so in remembrance of me. And we do that here as a tradition, as a sacrament in the church, that we come together to remember. We come together with a repentant heart to know that we need God's grace. It's an invisible act of God's grace in our lives. And yes, we do that as believers, but we also serve an open table here. And what that means is that Jesus came to make the kingdom of God accessible to all people, and that God's grace is available for all people, that God is active and working in each and every one of your lives, whether you know it or not. And so we don't put barriers up, we don't put limits up on who gets to receive God's grace. And that is why we serve an open table here as well. And so um, this morning, as you come forward, we will serve by intinction, which means you will open your hands to receive, which because we believe we received, we received the gift, we don't take it. And uh, the server will put it into your hands, and then you'll take that and you'll dip it into the cup, receive it, and then sit down. Let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Loving God, we thank you for this time of remembrance. We thank you for the table, for the sacrament of communion. We ask you pour your grace out on these elements that they be used to fill us with you, with your grace and your love, with the Holy Spirit to encourage us and empower us to go and live as your sons and daughters, that our identity rests in you as your children. And God, as we gather together, we remember these 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 words you gave us, we remember this moment. We love you and we honor you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.